0: You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the Rand Corporation. I'm Evan Banks.
1: And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from Rand's latest research and commentary. It's March 27th.
0: There are now reportedly more people in the U.S. infected with the coronavirus than in any other country. And the death toll from COVID 19 in America has now passed 1,000. Social distancing has been the primary tool to slow the spread of the virus. That has led to large swaths of the U.S. economy shutting down.
1: Washington is on the precipice of finalizing a $2 trillion aid package, the largest in U.S. history, to provide some economic relief from the COVID-19 pandemic. The plan includes direct payments to Americans, jobless benefits, and $500 billion for struggling businesses, among other measures. In a new Q&A on the RAND blog, our researchers discuss how the aid money might be best allocated to help the U.S. economy recover. They also explain how much the country can afford, how the current crisis compares to the 2008 recession, the most important steps that cities and business communities can take right now, and much more.
0: Today, we're bringing you a sample of what our experts had to say. Deborah Notman, a principal researcher here at RAND, explained that the aim of the aid package is to, quote, open the spigot on federal support. The goal is to help workers stay employed through the crisis, which makes this different than the economic stimulus we saw in the 2008 financial crisis.
1: So how exactly is what's going on now different from 2008? Here's senior economist and director of international research, Krishna Kumar. The 2008...
2: Great recession was a financial crisis that spilled over into the real economy, whereas this is a real health crisis that is spilling over into the economy and the financial sector. Which is why we have to be careful that we don't convert a health crisis into financial crisis. And from a policy implication point of view, that is why it is extremely important to contain the health crisis. First, because if we do not do that, people are not going to go out, people are not going to spend. So therefore, you know, the first aim is to contain the, the health crisis. And the hope then is that the recovery will be, you know, hopefully steeper than it was in the uh, 2008 crisis.
0: With a proposed relief package so large, another key question is how this money can be used most effectively. Senior economist Howard Schatz said that while there are different ways of looking at it, the immediate need is among people who are going to lose their jobs or who don't have protections, and for public health and healthcare professionals. Schatz said it's also important to focus on small businesses, which are likely to hurt the most, because they often have the thinnest profit margins and the fewest financing options. And to make matters even more difficult for small businesses, if larger companies start cutting back, then they might stop purchasing from smaller suppliers, or delay payments. According to Schatz, employees who lose their jobs might benefit the most from direct assistance. But it's likely that support for the businesses themselves will be needed too.
1: As for when the U.S. might get back to work, all of the researchers emphasize the importance of taking care of health first, even though there are economic risks to continued social distancing. Kumar put it this way, quote, we keep coming back to the primary health crisis and the need to keep the number of cases under control. Once that happens, we might have more flexibility in our economic policy actions as well.
0: We've only covered a few of the important questions that our researchers answered in this Q&A. For the full conversation, visit the RAND blog.
1: Another RAND researcher, epidemiologist Jennifer Bui, discussed the economic fallout from the pandemic during a recent testimony before the House of Representatives Small Business Committee. In her testimony, Bui described China's experience with the virus. She talked about how the Chinese government has shifted its focus to restarting the economy since COVID-19 reached its peak there in mid-February, and she offered some insights that the U.S. could use in developing its own response. Small and medium-sized businesses in China still face serious challenges, said Bui, including a broken supply chain, cash flow and revenue issues, and continued regulations that protect public health but limit commerce. Considering these challenges, U.S. policies could focus on providing protection for workers, particularly those in hard-hit industries like retail, restaurants, and hospitality. Such policies may provide childcare, emergency health insurance, and sick leave. For many of these employees, working from home simply isn't an option, and the extra support is needed.
0: Let's turn now to an area of the coronavirus response that definitely isn't discussed as much as the economy, but is absolutely critical. The nation's supply of blood. In 2016, brand researchers explored how a global influenza pandemic could disrupt the U.S. blood supply. Now, an even more serious and widespread pandemic is playing out in real life. The main concern detailed in the researchers' report, however, still holds true. The spread of COVID-19 has led to canceled blood drives and fewer individual donations. This disrupts the availability of blood, which can have grave consequences for patients. Additionally, the severity of COVID-19 and the magnitude of the response could lead to labor and supply shortages. That could also affect the ability to collect, distribute, and use blood. And the longer the pandemic continues to disrupt the blood supply, the more likely it is that long-term blood reserves will be depleted. But there are steps that can be taken to improve the long-term sustainability of America's blood supply. Clear communication from blood system officials and from the government on donor safety and high-demand blood products is important both during and after the pandemic. The system should also operate as efficiently as possible. This means minimizing waste and using fewer units of blood and deferring some procedures if possible. And finally, efforts should be made to identify and address disruptions in staffing and the flow of equipment and supplies that are crucial for donation, distribution, and the use of blood. These steps are important right now, not just to help with the pandemic response. According to the researchers, the stress that COVID-19 is expected to put on the U.S. blood system could leave us vulnerable to another shock, such as a natural disaster, even after the outbreak has been contained.
1: We are also drawing on RAND research to understand how the pandemic may affect the Gaza Strip, where this week, Palestinian health officials confirmed the first cases of COVID-19. This is especially concerning because Gaza, one of the most densely populated places in the world, faces a severe water crisis. A 2018 RAND report assessed this problem and found that the people of Gaza lack access to potable water that can be used for drinking, cooking, and hygiene, plus a lack of wastewater sanitation. And without clean water, washing your hands, one of the most basic and effective tools for stopping the spread of the virus, may be rendered ineffective. The state of water and sanitation in Gaza also means that its young and growing population is at risk of other disease outbreaks or water-related public health crises. The report outlines some recommendations to remedy the situation, including increasing the quantity and consistency of Gaza's electricity supply, increasing water purchases, investing in household and industrial wastewater treatment, And promoting more rigorous hygiene and sanitation education in schools. On next week's show, we'll zoom out from Gaza and discuss what the COVID-19 crisis could mean for the trends and dynamics in the Middle East.
0: And for our final segment on the pandemic this week, we're looking at the way that COVID-19 has exposed just how reliant we are on America's schools to help kids make the transition from high school to college or to the workforce. That's according to Rand researchers, who wrote this week about results from a new study. Data from the study, which surveyed nationally representative samples of teachers and principals, indicates that most schools do provide a variety of supports for college and career readiness. And most teachers reported that high-achieving students in their schools were well-supported for post-secondary transitions. However, the results also demonstrate substantial disparities in students' access to these supports. In particular, low-income minority and low-achieving students have less access to school-based supports than their counterparts in the same schools. And now that schools are closed, these disparities could get even bigger. The authors note that there isn't a clear set of solutions to these challenges, but they did offer some guiding principles for educators and policymakers. First, staying connected is critical. If feasible, schools should find ways to help students remain connected to resources like counselors and to ensure that students know where to go to find information about key milestones, requirements, and post-graduation opportunities when they're not in school. Second, post-secondary institutions should consider the unique challenges faced by today's high school students. Test optional admissions, for example, may continue to be used as a way to attract a broader swath of the 2021 applicant pool. Higher education institutions may also need to reevaluate financial aid options for currently accepted students whose family finances were devastated by the labor market and stock market effects of the pandemic. Third, students and their families need different ways to access important information. One option is for the Departments of Labor and Education to find ways to support efforts at the local level. This would help ensure that high school students without exceptional school supports and personal networks can also make informed post-graduation plans. Fourth and finally, equitable Internet access is crucial. The use of distance learning during the pandemic has highlighted internet access as a key part of the educational infrastructure. This underscores the importance of broadening internet access and providing internet-based college and career supports that are accessible to all students.
1: Let's close today with a story that you may have missed this week with everything else going on in the world. The 10th anniversary of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. The ACA was signed into law on March 23, 2010 by President Barack Obama. It expanded health coverage to millions of uninsured Americans, an estimated 47 million Americans at the time the bill was passed. And it did so by creating individual and small business insurance marketplaces and by broadening eligibility for Medicaid. But implementation of the law has been met with a lot of obstacles, including legal challenges and delays to key provisions. There were also a lot of questions about how the law affected employers and individuals. Over the last decade, RAND researchers have tackled some of these questions. Our experts examined the effects of the individual insurance mandate, assessed how enrollment of young people affected the individual marketplaces, modeled the potential effects of eliminating tax subsidies, examine decisions by states to expand or not expand Medicaid, and much more. You can find a comprehensive summary of our research on the ACA at rand.org ACA.
0: Rand is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. See you next week.